Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Welcome back, everyone, for another Pain Talk podcast. I have a wonderful guest who's been on our podcast in the past, Dr. Tina Koronik, and I believe she was with us in March of 2020. It's hard to believe it's been a year already. So Dr. Koronik and her colleagues continue to put out some amazing work, exploring some meaningful guidelines that primary care practitioners and patients can use, and yes, they've done it again. And this time their focus is on a simplified guideline for chronic pain. And I think it's the first time that we've ever seen anything like this that has really looked at the literature in a way that helps us find a way through this very complex illness so that we can afford people some quality of life and focus treatments on where we feel there can be some meaningful benefit. Now, this was a huge undertaking involving more than 10 health professionals, and they also included a patient with a lived experience of chronic pain. So I'm going to let Dr. Koronik dig into the details. So as mentioned, this was a huge undertaking, um, and I suspect many years in the making. So Thank you for coming, Dr. Kronick. And can you tell us about the guideline, how it was carried out, and what you found? I'm pretty excited about these guidelines because I think they they do something we haven't seen before in primary care is look at a lot of the common or a number of common conditions that we see in primary care and sort of develop an approach to. And historically, if we look in Canada, we haven't had the sort of overarching guideline before. We've had a few specific guidelines, say for low back pain or chronic non-cancer pain. Um, and this is was a guideline done by PEER, which is uh, an evidence-based medicine group that the main goal is just to empower primary care through best evidence. So the goal of the guidelines is really to provide clinicians and patients with evidence of effectiveness of all of these different interventions and then allow them to have some shared informed decision-making and sort of figure out how to move forward. Yeah, so we started out before we even began the guideline, we did three sort of overarching reviews that involved in total about 35 systematic reviews of the evidence on different interventions for chronic pain, looking at the outcomes of osteoarthritis or low back pain or, or neuropathic pain. And we started there and then we gathered a guideline committee together of, uh, experts and folks who dealt with chronic pain and primary care across the country and uh, came up with some more questions that we had in, in order to really try to make a useful document for, for clinicians. Yeah, I think what was important from my perspective was that I realized that um, there was nothing wrong with me as a clinician because I do find that the options that we have for treatment are really not that successful in clinical practice, I guess I could say. It's very discouraging, and I and I love the quote, um, you know, despite the prevalence of chronic pain and the subsequent search for effective therapies, an optimal approach in primary care management remains elusive. But I think the beauty in that statement is that it made me feel, okay, this, this is something that we're all experiencing, and the good thing is that this is a good starting point. Actually, I love that, and that's one of my favorite things in doing these type of evidence reviews is when you come up and say, you know, for all the clinicians who are wondering, you know, is there things I'm missing? What am I missing? What is everyone else doing that's right that I'm not doing? And you look at the evidence and you see, okay, no, it, it, we're all kind of coming from this common yeah. experience. Uh, and I agree, it's really empowering as a clinician to say, okay, well, here's the best we have. And from there on, we can work with our patients to kind of figure it out. 
So one of the things when I'm reading these guidelines, and I can't un- unsee this, uh, I've been doing a lot of work just around the uh, the non-invasive neuroimaging, just sort of looking at what's coming into that literature. And one of the things that keeps coming up for me, if we can merge these clinical guidelines with some of what the uh, neuroimaging research is telling us, I think that we can actually, because so I'll give, I'll give an example. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the physical activity and I'm going to kind of get you to take us through that. So, so the strongest recommend, recommendation that came from the guidelines uh, were the physical activity piece. And it was important not to link this to weight loss. Can you talk about why this was so important? And why that was something, or maybe we don't know the answer, but but I do think it's really important if I think about the neuroimaging stuff. This was a question the committee had, you know, is is weight loss in itself a, a treatment for chronic pain? Um, because sometimes we hear that a lot, you've got to exercise, lose weight. And so that was one of our supplemental questions we looked at. And the best, the highest level evidence, randomized controlled trials looking at weight loss for chronic pain um, didn't really show that. Uh, now... The, most of those trials, you didn't have patients losing 50 or you know, 60 pounds. So we don't know for higher, but the evidence we have right now didn't really show that. And there was a lot of discussion amongst our committee around this idea that the two are often coupled together. And if you can't do one, you feel like a, a bit of a failure with the other. And it's based on a, a belief system. But the evidence is really just there for physical activity, I- independent of any weight loss. And, and we kind of felt like putting those two together maybe sometimes sets people up for a bit of failure versus focusing on what we know we have evidence for that can improve your outcomes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I always tell patients as well not to link it to physical fitness either because what the, what the neuroimaging is suggesting is that there is this, this shift that happens within the brain through neuroplasticity where these negative emotive triggers become really important. So looking at you know, fear and danger, but also looking at uh, high attention towards things so people can become more hypervigilant. I guess what I'm trying to say is that they get more pain-focused and more um, more hypervigilant around how they think about pain and more attention. And I think it sets them up for a little bit of a, of a failure in the sense that they need to see the joy of movement, see the positive uh, motive kinds of things around movement rather than I got to do this in order to get fit, you know, to lose weight, sort of almost setting yourself up for failure rather than seeing the joy and the beauty in movement, but also f- seeing the movement uh, through a lens of safety. So when I try and get patients to move, some of the most important questions I ask them is that, what do you love to do? You know, what makes your body feel wonderful? And where does it feel safe to do it? Does it feel safe to sit in a chair or to lie down? We had a really interesting case in the clinic last week where this uh, poor woman was spending a lot of time sort of isolated from her family in her bedroom and lying down for a long, long periods of time. We're talking hours. So trying to meet her where she was and looking at movement, she loved music. So I said, well, where does it feel safe to actually be moving? And she said, well, you know, lying down. I said, that's a good place to start. <laughs> so even just moving her arms, you know, and then our physio too got her doing some other things, but trying to pull in the safety lens, you know, taking away those danger, fear kinds of triggers and seeing the joy in the movement um, rather than putting pressure and, and even around the tracking, 
can be problematic uh, for some patients because they, especially if they're perfectionist mindset, right? So I got to do it this way. I've got to get this many steps in. Um, and it takes away the joy and the pleasure. I'm just curious about what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, actually, I, I love that uh, that whole thought stream. Because with the other thing we looked at was one of the, another supplemental question is, because we had even within our um, committee, you know, some strong opinions of people saying, well, we know that, you know, aquatic therapy is the best, or we know that. Um, and, and we said, well, do we know that? So we, that was another question we tried to look at the evidence around. And, and there was really no clear winner for which yeah. physical activity is best. And, and it fits well with what you're talking about. And, and when we give talks, we say what activity is best is whatever the patient will enjoy um, and, and actually do. <laughs> and what they feel safe in doing as well. So water may be actually a very safe medium for some people, but it may be a terrifying medium for some people. So it has to be something that feels safe to do and, and in a way that makes them feel the joy joy in the movement. And it's because this is why it's so important, I think, not to link it to a particular task like weight loss or getting fit, you know, those kinds of things. It's really just about shifting that focus to a function focus away from that pain focus. Absolutely. Yeah. And actually, I we, we made a few recommendations because recognizing... And it is a bit of a mental shift for some patients, this idea that physical activity is not, uh, like it's actually the treatment, you know, it's not a side note or it's, it's, it's we, we really, really would encourage patients to be involved. And we recognize a lot of clinicians will say, well, my patients will say they can't do that. And so tried to find some resources. So Lori Montgomery, one of the docs on our um, committee, she had suggested Pain BC has some, you know, even videos like gentle movement at home. Yeah. So just yeah. that idea of, of something that you could do that doesn't scare you, that is actually manageable. Uh, those are sorts of the conversations I think we need to have with our patients. Yeah, to get over that fear. A lot of them are afraid that exercise will make things worse. And they also need to, I think, we don't spend enough time um, or even understanding what the right language is on how we help patients distinguish between acute or structural pain versus chronic or neuroplastic pain. So I know the terminology can be kind of confusing, but it's so important, I think, for patients to understand that they are going to feel some pain. Part of that can be related to the deconditioning that often happens with patients because they limit themselves in certain types of uh, uh, types of movements or uh, behaviors. And uh, but to feel safe with that pain, to see that as not something new or something dangerous, but it's just how their tissue, um, you know, where it hasn't been moved in a certain way for a period of time, may feel painful. And uh, making that distinction between acute pain and structural, or sorry, and neuroplastic pain, I, I think can be really important. But uh, so yeah, bringing in some of that, I think when I look at most of the therapies that we use for patients, especially when we look at some of the interventional therapies, we're still stuck in that biomedical model <laughs> that we focus on structures. And yeah, that can be okay if there are some structural triggers. And, and no, for some patients, there are structural triggers, right? Because they're just not moving. Um, and we know ourselves as we get older, when we get stand up from a chair, we're going to feel things, right? <laughs> that doesn't mean that I'm causing damage to my tissues. If we can just bring in some of this, um, what the non-invasive neuroimaging is telling us about how the brain is changing and they, you know, I think about some of the work by Dr. Hashimi, uh, who's out of Dalhousie, 
And she was able to follow uh, a low back pain for out for a year, like from the acute phase into that neuroplastic or chronic phase. And it was quite fascinating to see how through neuroplasticity that the brain started to really shift its function into more uh, more attention, more negative emotive triggers, like fear-based triggers. And it's almost like I think about it when somebody does a f- develops a fear of something, you know, fear of flying, fear of heights, you know, fear of conflict, you know, how our brain becomes more hypervigilant in preventing it, but also avoiding it as much as we can and uh, creating our life around that to limit it. So um, anyway, but I... I Got, to, got excited when I saw the guidelines and I said, ah, oh, can we look at it through the lens of safety and look at the, the lens of, of um, sort of how we can help patients build confidence in separating out their, their, their acute pain from their structural pain? <laughs> Just some thoughts. <laughs> to comment a bit on that, like our understanding of pain and how to treat it, um, I will just say we... Because there was so many areas where the evidence, you know, wasn't great, we had toyed with yeah. the idea of, of kind of developing some, you know, practical pearls or, or tips and how to manage pain. And, and we asked a number of experts across the country. But what happened was we just got a, a huge variation of, of suggestions and many of them conflicted. For instance, yeah. a number of experts said, you know, you need to make sure you use these pain scales and measure. Oh, and then we had a number of other experts who said, never, don't use pain scales. And I would totally <laughs> agree with that. And I'll explain that in a second. Right. Well, let's speak into that idea of focusing in on the pain versus mm. focusing on how we can, you know, movement and how can we improve this and, and that sort of thing. So there's so much variation in opinion, which really reflects a lot that we need to still understand on how to really approach. Well, this this com- comes back to the individual specific nature of the individual, right? We all experience a very personal experience when we have pain. But when we use pain scales, we're generalizing. And for most patients, in my experience with chronic pain, they hate it. They're trying to meet our expectation about how they're trying to explain their specific experience. But one of the things that I find can be very helpful, and I think it is important that we recognize what the patient is experiencing at the moment, because the information we bring in can be really overwhelming to them, especially if they're feeling a very high intensity of pain, because our brain feels so much danger. So we have to limit the information that we're giving them and getting them to focus on what I call calming techniques or pain protective, or to help them recognize how pain protective behaviors, which are really how our body adapts to pain may be contributing to some of their pain, but uh, but it's in that moderate to low that we can actually start introducing things. So I think it's even more important that, and I think we do recognize that we need to understand what the intensity of pain is patient is experiencing, but not, be, not because we want to lower it down. It's because we want to meet them where they are. So if they're having high intensity, just like if somebody's feeling a very high anxiety state, we have to limit the information but be able to still be able to give them some skills that um, are not in, not overwhelming, I guess. Yeah. So the pain scales, I as an eMERGE physician, so I already do eMERGE. I hate them. It's it's one of those things that creates stigma. It creates over medicating, uh, especially in populations that are living with uh, chronic pain. But uh, yeah, I think there needs to be lots of work done in that area. What is the best way to quantify? Uh, the state of pain that someone's feeling 
even though I understand that they're important from, uh, you know, even even with my palliative care head, I sometimes need that. But I also, I get patients to explain it to me now more in that high intensity, moderate to low. And I find that that's a really, because it brings back the individual specific kinds of approach that we should be using. Talking about those 11 supplement questions, I thought that those were kind of cool. And I was really keen on <laughs> going through those. And the, the first thing I got to was... Um, I don't know if you can comment on this. I know the li- the, the literature was quite limited, but um, in primary care, can interventions in the acute pain period prevent progressions to chronic pain? What did you find there? Yeah, so I love this. It was one of my favorite questions because I think I was always, many of us were taught, you know, sometimes chronic pain happens because you've undertreated the acute pain. Um, yeah. There's that piece. And then there's the other piece. Imagine if we could prevent the development of chronic pain, you know, in any way, wouldn't that be fabulous. Um, but the problem was when we looked, the majority of literature around this is, it comes from sort of during uh, 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 operative uh, interventions in patients. So looking at, can we give them medications? Can we do things, you know, preoperatively or postoperatively to prevent the development of chronic pain? And, the, and ultimately, there was really not anything that showed a significant benefit long term. Um, I thought it's an interesting... Um, there's there's a couple of trials going on right now actually looking at this question because it's a it's a fascinating question but unfortunately when we looked we we weren't able to come up with anything that uh that was a clear indication or a clear path forward on how we could prevent the development of chronic pain and and yeah. so you know hitting patients with <laughs> high dose of opioids early on doesn't seem to necessarily prevent the development of chronic pain later and it also has risk of causing yes. opioid induced hyperalgesia exactly yeah. right and in fact probably <laughs> makes things worse yeah <laughs> so if we looked at this so i'm going to bring the neuroimaging back um and i'm sure there are other um there's other data out there not so much from that negative emotive trigger but if we looked at it through a lens of danger and fear that may be part of what tries to ramp it up. So I think about where I think the interventions can be so important, um, Tina. You know, we wait till three months before we define chronic pain. Like, like what? who decided that? Like, what is the literature around that? Arbitrary, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. and to me, when I think about where we need to do something different, if we look at the norm, because I mean, acute pain has a very predictable pattern, right, from a tissue base, if we look at that biomedical base. um, So we should see some predictability if that patient is not recovering, meaning that their pain is escalating, and we're not finding anything new or any progression of a pre-existing disease, what is actually happening? You know, is 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 it medication related? So asking ourselves about that opiate induced pain, but also, is this a cognitive thing in terms of how the patient's processing the experience or the information that they've received that they're processing in a way that's actually, you know, kind of causing an elevation? And I, I, I'll give you a great example of a young girl. Now, this was not a surgical case, but this was actually a whiplash case. And very early in her experience, she had quite a bit of neck pain. She probably had a, an overlying concussion as well with that, but she was told that she had permanent damage to her neck. That this would, and she was like 22, and I was seeing her when she was probably 31, and so she carried that with her. It didn't even actually initially come into the discussion because she was coming in with another uh, issue around chronic pain, and when we explored that with her and showed her that her X-ray was actually the X-rays that were done were completely normal. 
Um, but somehow the messaging to her, and I, and I honestly don't think that that's uh, what was said to her. I think it's how she processed that information. But asking patients something simply, what do you, why do you think your body is not recovering? You know, at an early stage, and sometimes pro- or sort of seeing if we can actually dig into that, that cognitive piece that may be contributing to how they're processing that, that experience for them in their life. I'd love to see some research around there as well. Yeah, actually, I mean, that's a great question. That's like a, a Fife question, right? But yeah, why, yeah, there's often, you're right, some other contributors that we may not identify if we're not asking those questions. Well, but they're told as well, you might as well, you no, know, we got to wait for three to six months, give it some time, it's going to get better. But the longer we wait, the more the brain is changing, the more the nociceptors are changing, and the patient's developing habits and behaviors that may not be actually helpful. You're right. There's a lot we don't understand. Uh, I was talking to one of your colleagues about some of the psychological therapies that they studied, which was mindful-based stress reduction and uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. So those are also very interesting. But for most of us in primary care, like that seems really overwhelming to get skilled in those areas. And, And to have access to psychological support can be really challenging. Sometimes we think of guidelines helping direct clinician and patients, but also hopefully you sort of driving policy and, and the recognition, recognition that these are sort of supports that would help us. And I agree with you. I work in a big urban center. My access to this type of care is very, very, very limited, I would say. So hopefully it's just sort of increasing the awareness that there's you know more required for chronic pain than just a, a trial of a medication here and there. In fact, that's probably the the least helpful thing we can do um, and trying to push that agenda. And, and we see a little bit of that in programs popping up, but um, hopefully we'll continue to see some of that and, you know, those supports for, for people who are really struggling. Oh, yeah. I mean, even even access to pain self-management, although what, if COVID's done anything beautiful, it's really forced us to look at different models of care that we're providing and to th- consider hybrid models. Um, And it's really coming into the fact of where patients feel the most comfortable getting their information. But uh, at that stage, you know, where you're meeting them where they are in that process. So for some patients, they really do find it helpful to come into a group setting. But for other people, it seems really threatening to be part of a group. But um, yeah, so hopefully we'll get some more, more supports and things for that. Although we're constantly struggling for dollars now, I find, too. Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah. It, yeah. And, you know, sometimes we, we say healthcare has a lot of money. It's just where we've allocated it sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think they start, they need to start evaluating some of the interventional strategies. I think it's important to offer patients interventional strategies if the body sort of, or if the structural areas in our body sort of suggest that there could be some benefit. Um, but I guess in terms of keeping patients on these therapies for years and years, which we do see, I think we need to look at that evidence as well, because that's a huge cost to to the healthcare system. One of the things you guys are really good at doing is, is uh, providing some tools for clinicians around the efficacy of what's out there and how to have those discussions with their patients. I'm wondering if you could talk about some of those tools. Oh, yeah, I would love to. Yeah, that, and that's always the goal. In the end, we do this work in, and uh, recognizing, especially in primary care. I mean, we certainly see chronic pain, but, you know, as you know, we see uh, 500 other issues. So you need a brief, uh, you sort of need a brief yeah. one pager for each of these things. And so uh, we did that with the guideline as well. Um, and one of the key things is 
actually trying to present numerical benefit. Because historically we've said, well, this will help, this won't help, you should do this. But nobody really recognizes, you know, what, well, what benefit would I expect from that? What are the potential harms from that intervention? Um, and so it's taking away some of that paternalistic care, which I think, um, you know, even the, the Canadian Task Force on Chronic Pain really advocated that patients need to be involved in the mm. management of their chronic pain, right? You, you, a paternalistic approach is probably not going to work very well. Not good. Right? They actually know more <laughs> about their illness than we do. Well, exactly. Honestly. Yeah. You know. it, yeah, exactly. They've obviously, they've been suffering with this and, and researching it and reading around it. And so for us to have a tool, so we have this one page tool that lists um, all of the interventions that we were able to identify in, in looking at chronic pain that were able to give us a, a number that said how many patients with this intervention would see a response. And my favorite part actually is that a response is, I mean, it's terrible, but good information. A response in many studies is defined as a 30% improvement. So yeah. it's, it's not a cure. And I think that's the first step is setting up the yeah. expectations. Like many of these, are the, the expectation isn't cure, but it's, a, it's a, an improvement in clinical pain that hopefully is meaningful to you. Um, and then what we do is we list uh, all of the, the different interventions, you know, so anti-inflammatories, uh, looking at acetaminophen, opioids, all these things and look at what's the benefit you might expect compared to a, a placebo intervention. Um, and then on the other side, listing potential harms associated with each of these interventions. And most clinicians will be familiar, you know, with common harms, with anti-inflammatories or, or what have you. But listing it there also for the patients um, so that, that we can review a document like this and say, okay, here's, here's some of the options. And um, looking at benefits versus harms and what you'd expect to see. And again, for clinicians, I think it's somewhat empowering if they... You know, you, you might say, well, these people over here are using these medications. Are they better than what I'm using? Should I, am I using sub, you know, subpar interventions? And with a quick glance, you can see, well, here's the best evidence we have, actually. Yeah. This is it. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, the the beauty of these tools, I use them all the time in pain self-management. And I, I find people are quite shocked, especially around cannabis. Everybody's interested in cannabis is, you know, the number needed to treat and, and actually who, who may benefit, who may not benefit. What I have found sometimes with these guidelines is that it has allowed patients, for some patients, they've been told that they have to stay on these medications. There's nothing more that we can do for them. And it allows them to have permission to come off them because they think, what? Why, why am I even on this? It really doesn't help me. And uh, so I've uh, worked with their, obviously, their family doctor to taper them. But, but a lot of family docs are really scared to take them off it, too, because they're like, what else am I going to offer them? And I said, there's tons we can actually start to look at. Um, there's a, a lot of really good resource out there. Yeah. Have you um, had the chance to, uh, there's a great uh, book out there that's been out there recently. I mean, I've, I've, there's all, obviously lots of stuff on chronic pain, but uh, a gentleman by the name of Alan Gordon um, called The Way Out. He brings in some of that neuroimaging. There's not all, I mean, there's some aspects that I don't like in what he's talking about. Like he talks about, I call them calming techniques. He calls them avoidance behaviors. So that kind of negative from my perspective. But patients develop calming techniques to, to get their pain down to those moderate to low intensity. And some of them are good. Some of them are not so good. But this is where we can, as healthcare providers, promote some good, healthy, like activity would be a good calming technique or mindfulness be a good 
calming technique where, you know, you start to learn to kind of get yourself out of that, that uh, crazy place where our brain goes when we're experiencing terrible pain. But he's, it's a really interesting read. Uh, and I think it gives patients some really good skills around understanding that uh, pain, danger, alarm cycle that we can get into. Um, so it's, uh, I have been recommending it to some patients, but, um, but it just, it would be a really interesting read, sort of looking at what you guys have brought in and then seeing what, what's sort of out there now, uh, just, just new information that's sort of starting to come out. Cause I do think I can see all of these things. Actually, I'm presenting at the Dow Refresher at the end of the month and I've merged your guidelines with the, these neuroimaging guidelines. And I said, here's the good thing, people. Cause I could see everybody's eye just rolling over. Well, like, of course we know people need to move. <laughs> it's not the problem. It's how do we get them to move? <laughs> it, just on the movement thing, I was uh, I spoke to a couple of colleagues when we were developing these guidelines, and and I said, you know, the evidence by far is the best for exercise. And I had a colleague say, I don't believe it. And I was thinking, in in some cases, we may uh, we speak of other specialties seeing a bias, but we may see a, a bias in who presents to us, right? So patients who are exercising and managing their pain, okay, may not come in, um, but then the patient who's overdone it and uh, has osteoarthritis, they're the ones who will come in and say, every time I, you know, I exercise, I have this terrible pain. Right. So it's sort of interesting from a, a primary care point of view too, just to remind yeah. clinicians that uh, you might see some patients who've said pain, exercise has made my pain worse, but the evidence in its entirety, and there's a large number of trials really shows, and again, it, you know, safe, uh, reasonable exercise actually improves outcomes in the long term. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, the, if you think about it from an evolutionary, we need to be moving, right? Our, our, if we're not moving, if we're kind of, you know, not functional, just kind of isolated, uh, our pain actually gets worse. And we see that in palliative care as well, that once patients start to limit their activity, their pain starts to escalate. Uh, now, part of that may be their disease as well, but we almost have to increase the amount of uh, analgesia that we use, especially uh, when patients get close to the end of life and they're not moving. The other thing I want to just bring up about moving that we don't think about, although I'm seeing a ton of commercials on this now, and I thought, God, these guys are re reading my brain or something. So how people move is really important. And when patients are experiencing pain, they often tuck forward. So I call it the pain tuck. And what that starts to do because their center of gravity changes is that their hips, their knees, their back actually start to carry an extra 42 pounds of weight. So it is so predictable that patients will start with low back pain and then start to develop hip, knee, uh, feet pain, uh, thigh pain. It's just a, one of these days I'm going to go back and look at some of this data. When we're actually seeing a patient, so I'll give you an example of where this becomes really important when we start to focus on the osteoarthritis as the primary cause. But what we need to do is to be able to step back and say, so if I have a patient who's 75, and my question that I always love to ask patients is, tell me when pain became persistent for you in your life. And they will take me back to when they were seven, when they fell out of a hayloft and broke their femur. So from that point on, they actually had chronic pain. And so I'm seeing a 75-year-old who's had that many years of pain, who is now showing these degenerative changes, this wear and tear, who's walking in a way that you can tell that this woman has had a lot of pain in her life, doesn't have spinal stenosis, so there is, but now what she's got is deconditioning and she's sort of in these fixed positions. So if we see these things now, which are the upright walkers, you know, the upright canes, 
if we can remind patients early on in their injury being able to get upright because eventually it becomes through neuroplasticity an automatic thing for them to come forward and now they start stressing other areas of their body. So these pain protective behaviors are to me important and we should be trying to identify them even in that acute pain piece and trying to help patients remedy them but also in chronic pain, if we're able to help the patient recognize, you know, that they're actually in that tuck position and how, and they may not be able to correct it at that point, but you're hoping to do it, you know, eventually. But most patients, when you, now, now when you're trying to correct that, it's, I tell people, it's like fitting a, an insole or a new orthotic in your shoe. You can't do it for 12 hours a day because obviously that foot's not going to be used to correcting just like those muscles aren't. So when those muscles you're trying to correct them, um, they are going to they are going to be painful, but it doesn't mean you're causing damage. You just kind of ease into it, not be afraid to do it. That that's your how your muscles have gotten more deconditioned, right? Anyway, but I think those things would be something practical for physicians as well to start looking at. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, anyway. absolutely. Right. That, and I think, and just speaking to that historically. Um, the other interesting thing about chronic pain is for years, uh, so the Canadian, the College of Family Physicians of Canada has sort of 99 topics that we need to be familiar with before we graduate. And they've just recently added chronic pain as one of those, <laughs> right? So this idea that um, a lot of clinicians, we haven't really been trained in how to manage pain. And even all these practical things you're speaking of are things that, I mean, we, we learned about opioids, but <laughs> yeah. Beyond that, there's just so much more um, that we could yeah. likely do. Yeah. Or even understand, I mean, like I said, pain is a very personal experience. And if we if we bring in that biopsychosocial model, I mean, from the brain's perspective, it's just the internal alarm that we have. It's our body telling us that we need to pay attention. So it does have purpose, but obviously it's not a good thing when it doesn't want to go away because it just creates so much chaos in the life of that person. But if they understand uh, why the body is do or why the brain is doing this and why the body is responding the way it is, sometimes for some patients it makes a little bit of sense. Like this lady I saw in the clinic, just oh my gosh, just last week, she she actually burst burst out crying in the in the middle of the clinic. We were talking about how pain has a purpose, right? It's there to tell us when tissue's injured, but the body is very resilient; it can heal that tissue, you know. And pain is supposed to shut off. And then she burst out crying. She's like 62 years old, but she went back to an experience that she had as a 15-year-old doing, she was a gymnast and doing a backflip. And she was convinced that she did this permanent damage. So coming back to that permanent damage in, in this muscle. But when she realized that, no, no, the body healed that. So the pain process is different, but the body still feels it needs to protect that, that leg, right? So... Um, and I don't, I don't, I find a lot of people don't see pain as actually serving a purpose, right? It's, it's, um, we just want to get rid of it rather than see it as communication. Not to say that I, we should minimize um, individuals suffering, obviously. It's, it's just that I'm always very interested in how, how we process these things and how we're able to move forward in our life and how it holds us back. Yeah. You know, when, when we prioritize RCT, randomized controlled trials, and it's, it's, we don't have a lot of data when it yeah, comes to yeah. that. I think I think we're almost world. I think now we're understanding that we need to look somewhere else. How we do those studies is going to be really important. But what 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 this non-invasive neuroimaging is doing 
It's the same thing what ultrasound did for us in emergency. It changed the tools that we used to actually assess patients. I mean, stethoscopes no longer are your primary tool for assessing patients anymore. It's ultrasound. Whereas uh, with the, now mind you, we don't have access to functional MRIs, but the neuroimaging is telling, it's actually giving us an objective map of what's happening to that person's brain, what part of the brain is being impacted, the the uh, and how we might be able to approach or unwire some of that, or even bring in some other therapies like an ECT type therapy or a, a targeted therapy, or you know other types of therapies. Even though that sounds scary, bringing in ECT, but I think of it as a rewiring, yeah, a rewiring or rebooting or yeah, coming to that brain so important. Yeah, and we're actually starting to understand the common pathways between pain and addiction. So one of my colleagues said to me who does addiction, he said, well, what's the reward in pain? And I said, pain relief. (laughs) That's the reward for the brain. So, I mean, addiction is a a life threat. If we look at opioid addiction, it's it's not a moral or ethical failing. It's a life-threatening complication of the drug, right? It's, It's how these drugs change and adapt um, and, and, you know, in a vulnerable brain kind of thing. So the brain learns very quickly what works and what doesn't. So if we're not monitoring patients, that's, that patient could be at risk for developing addiction, even though it's a very, you know, the risk isn't huge, but it's definitely there. It's, yeah, I, and it's such an important thing. Again, when we reevaluate how we manage pain, and like I said, historically, opioids were, I always felt that was the, you, you were holding out on a patient unless you gave them opioids, right? So, um, and now recognizing that even even short term, um, you have to be careful. Well, Tina, we were shamed. We were shamed in the emergency room as, a, as an emergency physician. I was told I was a bad doctor because I would not give opiate analgesics. And I can remember going to conferences and, and speaker after speaker saying you are a bad physician because you're not using this. But because I wore that hat with a palliative care physician, I went, you guys are missing something here. Because I was, as, as a palliative care physician, you often end up managing very complex pain in patients that don't have life-limiting illnesses, but have very complex pain and complex pharmacotherapy. And you quickly realize that this is a really different uh, different beast. They don't respond to this high-risk pharmacology the way you would expect happen. But the pharmacology is very hard to stop because the brain learns very quickly what works. I do think there's a distinct difference as well between the use of short-acting and long-acting opiate analgesics. Chronic pain populations tend to focus more on the short-acting because I think their brain needs to feel that work, right? They understand their, their high intensities of pain and they learn quickly that that tool works. And so we need to be so careful. I agree totally uh, um, how we use them. It doesn't mean we shouldn't use them. I think we need to frame it the same way we do other high-risk pharmacotherapy. Like when I'm using anticoagulations, I'm risk stratifying. I'm managing risk with the patient. So why wouldn't I do it with these other high-risk medications, right? We attach that moral and ethical lens to it, and, and then we feel bad when we don't use it. Is there anything else that you want to add, uh, uh, Tina? Because obviously you're a wealth of information as well. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. The only thing I would, just along that line, we were talking about uh, opioids, right? And so in the... In the guideline, we we address that, and just the background being that, especially uh, when you look at opioids for osteoarthritic pain or low back pain, that the evidence when you divide it up short term, that they do show a bit of a benefit. Longer term, no benefit, and even the longest studies, it almost trends the other way. Yeah. And one of my colleagues is is working on another systematic re- re- review right now that shows the the same thing that long term opioids don't help, and it, 
potentially maybe worsening the situation, um, which I think is just revolutionary to some of us who have always been taught the opposite. And yeah, um, yeah. But I also think it's reassuring, Tina. I think the, the issue, I think most of us uh, kind of recognize, okay, this is not good long term. But how do we, it's, it's not so much as, uh, the evidence telling us, it's, it's how do we help patients manage it, especially legacy patients, but also understand where the value of bringing this pharmacology, because it does have a role. I'm not saying it's going to be in chronic pain personally, and that's my, my bias, but, but I, I think it's understanding because there are now we've got a situation where I've got colleagues that won't even prescribe opioids for patients who have significant, uh, you know, diagnosis like cancers. They're just too afraid to, to prescribe them. And I think, wow, I mean, we need to understand the value, but also the risk, just like anti-clotting drugs, right? Value and risk. And how do you manage the risk? Well, absolutely. And it, and you bring up an interesting point. Um, so patients who are on long-term opioids, uh, another question we had asked, you know, would tapering them off make them feel better? And, um, and the evidence doesn't really support that. There's not great evidence. And in fact, there's a lot of observational data that shows potential harms, um, yeah. which puts us in a difficult situation, right? So uh, again, uh, and I know some of my, my colleagues who, who deal with people on, you know, high dose opioids, when they see physicians stopping those abruptly, that that's, uh, that's another dangerous pitfall. Um, yep. And we have to yep. be really Absolutely. careful, right? As we, as we navigate how we're managing chronic pain, the patients who are already on high dose opioids, those are going to be managed different than the new patients we see, right? And we have to we, we have to be careful there because it's there's potential for harm if we apply it yeah. across all. Yeah, the legacy patient has to be managed very, very differently. And I think we have to be okay and we have to let our colleagues know it's okay that they're using those opioids. Your job is to keep them safe, uh, making sure they're staying functional. So this brings in another really important um, aspect of this is how they manage that risk in terms of understanding urine uh, drug screening pill counts, limiting the dispensing, and being okay with that as well. So, um, but there's, yeah, there's just so much that needs to come into it. But uh, even though most clinicians don't have any trouble thinking of doing an INR on someone on Coumadin. <laughs> but the idea of a pill count is like, yeah, no, that's, that's not very nice. I, I appreciate your time, Tina. Thank you so much. I just think you guys are amazing. I'm so envious of, of the work that you guys are doing. It's just phenomenal. And I do think it's really helping. And uh, it just really brings the discussion. But I think if people, because like a couple of colleagues said, well, activity, yeah, well, who, who thought, right? You know, and I said, no, 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 this is really important. Now we got to figure out how we got to do it. Because it's not like somebody with acute pain. It's somebody that's living with persistent pain and see that lens, uh, that lens of activity that needs to feel safe for them in a way that's going to bring them back to the joy of movement. Yeah, exactly. You know, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, my dear. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Stay, stay in touch. Okay. Yeah.